Good evening, everybody. Happy Fourth of July. Baruch Hashem will have some, uh, some sound effects in the background. Especially living in South Florida. Everyone loves fireworks. We actually have some of our own for after this year. I'm not joking. Michal purchased some. Growing up in L.A., there was no such thing as doing your own fireworks in your backyard. But you move down to the south, and it's a very different story. You walk into Publix, you walk into Costco, everyone's selling it. Topic this evening, in honor of the holiday, but also, more importantly, in honor of the Parsha, is the making of a leader. I'd like to explore with you briefly ten principles of leadership that we see through the lens of the Torah. Parshas Pinchas, we have the famous request from Moshe Rabbeinu, where Hashem tells him, ascend to the mountain, take a look at Eretz Yisrael, but you're not going in because of the hate of Meimarima, because of the sin of the hitting of the rock. And then right after hearing that, Moshe says back to Hashem, his first request, before I go, just give me the satisfaction, give me the comfort that I know that you've appointed someone to take over. You have a qualified leader to, to take Eretz, to take Klal Yisrael into Eretz Yisrael. A leader that will go in front of them, that will guide them, who will take them, and he'll bring them. Please don't allow the Jewish people to be like a flock without its shepherd. Promise me you'll appoint someone good. Hashem says back to Moshe, Take Yeshua ben Nun, a man who possesses the spirit, place your hand upon him, he will be the next leader. So Rashi points out the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu, hearing that he's about to leave this world, and just a reminder that he's not going to lead Klal Yisrael into Eretz Yisrael, the only thing on his mind, the only agenda item is, I just have to make sure that they have a leader that cares about them, that will guide them, that will direct them, a person who has ruach, a person who has the spirit, and we'll explore what that means later. And Rashi says, We see here the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu, for that matter, all tzaddikim throughout history. It wasn't just about me. It's about Klal Yisrael. It's about the future. That's the one thing on his mind. What is the definition of a leader? So you look at the... Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and it says, a person who leads, profound, such as guide, conductor, for example, the tour leader recommended several restaurants in the area, a person who has commanding authority or influence. So you take this definition at face value, and it sounds like it's saying... A leader is based on your position. You're a guide, you're a conductor, you have a commanding authority, 
either because they elected you or because you're the king. Whatever it is, it's based on your position that makes you a leader. We disagree with this vehemently. <coughs> Leadership has absolutely nothing to do with your title. Leadership has nothing to do with, with your prestige, with your stature, with the initials before or after your name. A leader is any person who can influence other people. And that means, therefore, a leader is everybody. We're all leaders in our own sphere of influence. Sometimes not having any formal position is actually helpful in maximizing our ability to be a true leader. Rav Aaron Kudler has a beautiful eulogy that he said in 1953 when the Chazonish passed away. And the way he described the Chazonish, he said, Lo hayarav, lo ram, lo rabbi. He wasn't a rabbi, he wasn't a Rosh Hashiva, he wasn't the leader of anything officially. Alabalabai is poshit. He acted, he, he portrayed himself like a regular guy. He did his thing. But said Rav Aaron Kudler, Dafka Mishum Kach, it was because of that. It was because he avoided the spotlight. He was able to achieve that which he did, something that other people didn't get close to. Kihu Evid he was able to focus all of his energies and all of his strengths and all of his qualities purely the shame shemaim was with sincerity. Because the downfall of any official position is it always gets so murky. It always gets so political. And then it's about what they think of him and what he thinks of them. And you could so easily be thrown off track Rav Aaron Cutler said about the Chazonish that the Nakuda Merkazis, the central point in his greatness, was the fact that he didn't have any official position. He was able to fully devote himself and his life to learning and to teaching Lishma with sincerity, with no other motivation. So we're all leaders, and sometimes having no official position enables us to do more. I'd like to share with you briefly these 10 principles. This is not a comprehensive picture of leadership. There's a lot more we can discuss, but these are 10, 10 usodos, 10 fundamental ideas. The first is vision. Obviously, a leader has to have vision. It's not just what we see in front of us right now. It's not just how things are going right now, but where we're going to be five years from now, where we're going to be 20 years from now, I have to have that vision crystal clear in my own mind, and I have to share it with others. Rev. David Leibowitz, in the later part of the 19th century, he was one of the, the close disciples of the altar of Slobodka. He started the Yeshiva Chafetz Chaim here in America in 1933, and named after his great uncle, the Chafetz Chaim. So he has a letter trying to explain, and we've quoted this before in the past, he has a letter trying to to describe what the goal of the Kovna Kolel was. This was the elite Kolel in Europe, part of the Slobodka Yeshiva. Many, many great personalities were born from that particular Kolel. So he writes in his letter, Kol Dover Tzarech program. Everything needs a program. You have to know why are we doing this. Ube'ein tachlis, and without a clear defined goal, You'll just do that which is natural and easy to do. 
So you have to have a clear goal. Matara v'tachlis, you have this objective, you have this thing we're trying to pursue, v'achar kachtasa, and then you do it. But don't just do things. Don't just have events. Don't just try to raise money. You have to know what you're striving for. We can have all the money in the world, and we can have all the amazing programs and events and speakers, if we're a school, if we're a shul, if we're anything, if we're a business. But if I don't have clarity on the vision, all of that is worthless. He goes on to say, what is our goal? What is the intent of this kolel and kovna? It would be a mistake to think that the point of this kolel is to produce rabbis or the heads of yeshivas. We're not here to produce those people. Of course, we need those people. We need to fill those positions. We need official people to teach others. However, Shabir has said Naktino so. If you were to describe the goal of the Kolel, that we're making rabbis or Rosh Hashivas, that's minimizing what we're really doing. What's the goal? It's much broader. We're trying to make great Jews. Yehudim Gedolim. We're making great Jews that will fight the good fight that will stand up for Torah, that have the ability and the courage to, to fight against the, the culture if it's not in line with Torah values. If your intent by joining the Kolel is to gain any official position, I'm telling you right now, that's not what we're here for. Go out into the world, once you're a Yehudi Gadol, you're, you're a big Jew, you're accomplished, and change the world. You could be a lawyer, you could be a doctor, you could be an accountant, you could be a plumber, you could be a rabbi. I think this was not only the goal of the Kovna Kolel, but this is the goal of any Torah institution. When we're trying to teach and we're trying to inspire and we're trying to motivate, it's about making Yehudim Gedolim, great Jews. Therefore, the leadership is not to get people to follow you. I don't need to follow you. The goal is not to have followers. The goal is to create leaders. There's a difference between having followers and having disciples. Disciples are people that fully understand your vision, and I'm bought into it, and therefore I want to work with you and together with you, and I could be your disciple. The word follower has the connotation that it's more blind, I'm doing it because of your charisma, but I'm not really sold. And if I'm not really sold on your vision, then the Malbim tells us, then I'll, I'll do things, and I'll, and I'll listen to instructions, and I'll do what I have to do, but it's not going to be with any enthusiasm. Even in, in the beginning it might be exciting, but if I'm not bought in to what we're striving for, then I don't have that same excitement. I'll give you an example. Right, most shuls in the world have policies regarding the decorum during davening. There's no talking during davening. So if the only message is, don't talk during davening, 
אסור לדבר בשעת התפילה. Hopefully that'll do something, but if I'm in the middle of a good conversation and someone else comes over to me and he tells me, by the way, the rule is not to speak during davening, it's hard to be inspired by that. So instead of just telling people this is the policy, we want to explain what the vision is. Why are we here? Why are we gathered together on Saturday morning and waiting until 11.30 to finally eat breakfast? So why are we doing this? We're doing it because we believe in a Boreolam. There's a creator of the universe. And like the Ramban tells us at the end of Parshas Bo, we gather together with a minion, the Rovam Hadras Melech, with the more people, the more real it is. And that's the way we express our Amunah by turning to Hashem and davening. It's both expressing and it's also enhancing Amunah. Davening is not about decorum. It's not about having policies. Of course you have to have those. But if, if, if you bring me on board as to why I'm standing in this shul and what we're trying to accomplish, and you come over to me, not that you're mad at me, but you're trying to explain, how could you be talking when, when, when he's still davening Shmon Esrei? If he's still davening, that probably means he has something to daven for. And Baruch Hashem, maybe you don't have the same kind of need that he does right now, but, but if he's still davening, imagine what could be going through his head. He's speaking to Hashem. If we really believe in this, how can we be talking? We have to share the vision. The, the, uh, the Gemara says, it's based on a Mishnah, that if I have your produce and I'm holding it for you, so it might go bad if I keep your fruits the way they are. I could sell them though and buy others and then maybe things would be okay. The Mishnah says, at least according to one opinion, I cannot sell his fruit, I have to keep his own produce, even though he'll be getting significantly less when he comes back. The Gemara explains why is that. Because, I'd rather have only one portion of my own produce than nine of somebody else's. And this is true throughout every aspect of life. If I'm invested, if I'm sharing your vision, then I want in. It's not just I'm listening to you, but I'm engaged and I'm with you. When it comes to paskening, how do you make any halachic ruling? So many questions out there and there are so many different opinions. So the Shach, who's one of the famous commentaries in the Shulchan Aruch, he has a section in the very back of Yeridea Simon Reish Pei Reish Mem Beis, where he delineates the basic principles of how to rule in any question. And we know generally if we have a majority versus the minority, so we go with the majority. Let's say you have one person saying, this is not okay. And you have two people saying, this is okay. However, the two people who are saying the same thing, they're both saying it's mutta, they're both saying it's permissible, one is the Rebbe and one is the Talmud, one is the teacher and one is his student. Do they count as two opinions or are they one opinion? Says the Shach, they count as two opinions. Because if he's a real Talmud, if he's a real disciple, he's not just a follower. We don't make followers. We make disciples. That means he might be saying the same thing that the teacher is saying, and he got that from his Rebbe, but he's internalized it to the point where he understands it. He's counted as a separate opinion. 
Those are the people we're trying to create. Not followers, but disciples. Number two is authenticity. There's no way that you're going to get me to believe in your vision if I don't believe in you. There's no way to sell me on what you're trying to do if I think maybe you're not sincere. We had recently in our Navi class, at the beginning of Shmuel Beis, speaks about the assassination of Avner. And Avner was killed by Yoav. Yoav was the general of David's army. Avner was the general of, of the house of Shaul, of Ishbosheth. And when he was executed, he was actually assassinated. So David mourned greatly. And he did things that usually kings would not do. He was standing right there by the, the funeral procession. He was weeping. He was expressing more emotion that was usually acceptable for a king to show. The reason he was doing this, besides the fact that he was distraught, he wanted to make it clear to the nation, and he was just starting off as Melech Yisrael, he just took over the kingship, he didn't want anyone to think that he was behind the assassination of Avner. So he needed to display his mourning. The commentators are bothered by the question that maybe, maybe he was faking. If you really think that the nation is looking at you and, and they suspect that you were behind Avner's assassination, so maybe you're just going through all of these things to, to try to fool us, but really you're the guy. You were behind his death. So the Malbim says an amazing idea. Malbim says, because David and Melech was so sincere, because the mourning was so genuine, Shekol ha'am hekiru, all of the nation recognized, Shalohai b'zeh ramos, he wasn't playing around, he wasn't a faker. Listen to this line and keep it forever. Ki ha'emes nikr, truth is recognizable. Truth penetrates. If it's something you're saying, if it's something you're doing, or it's who you are. V'haziyuf, but if you're trying to fake me out, you could fool some people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Eventually, I'm going to see you. Concludes the Malbim. Anything that's done with sincerity and straightness of the heart, you will find you will find favor in the eyes of others. So when you're authentic and you're sincere, then I could believe in you, then I could believe in your mission. The advantage of believing in you is that sometimes the mission is not as romantic. Sometimes it's not as exciting. Sometimes it's just boring and it's dull and I'm not really into it right now. But as long as I have a Kesher, I have a relationship with you, and I know that you're real, I'll always have that sense of connection with what we're doing. There have been a Yonah writes in his commentary to Pirkei Avos that when I have a Rebbe, when I have a real teacher that I respect, that even if he tells me something, Dover below Tom, that's not that interesting, it's not that deep, Yimtak Bufihu, it'll still be sweet in my mouth, the Yismach Bo, and I'll be joyful over this new little kernel of knowledge. Shu yodeya shu emes, because I know it's true. How do I know it's true? Acher shirabo amro, because my Rebbe told me. It's not saying to be naive. My Rebbe said so, it must be true. 
We've spoken in the past about healthy skepticism and questioning and probing and asking questions. But when I believe in you, everything you say has a different impact on me. Number three. Not only do we have to believe in you, I need to know that you believe in me. I need to know that you care about me more than it. So I'll give you an example. Every year we have a communal cheshben hanefesh. We get together for the state of the community. Now that's true in any business. A business will get together and sometimes they'll even have a workshop to help people become more organized or more efficient or stress management or anger management. And if you were to go to the CEO of this particular corporation and ask him, why are you spending millions of dollars on the well-being of your employees? Who made you such a tzaddik, such a wonderful person? So the real answer would usually be, and there are exceptions, but the real answer would be, we need our people to be healthy, both physically and mentally, in order to produce. So I care about you because I care about it more. And therefore, you need to be okay to be able to achieve our goal. I'm not sold. If I'm going to be a disciple, if I'm going to be included in your vision and believe in you, then I have to know that you believe in me and you care about me more than it. It's not just because you want the bottom line, but because you want what's best for me. During a tumultuous time in Moshe Rabbeinu's life, where the nation was complaining, he turns to Hashem and he says, Did I conceive this nation? Did I give birth to this nation that, that you would tell me I should carry them like an infant in my lap? They're not my children. I'm just trying to be their leader. But I'm not their father. What exactly was Moshe telling Hashem? So the Svorno explains in the 1500s, Source number 15, he says, A father is able to lead and direct and guide his children, even though they might have different viewpoints, they might be arguing. Why will they still listen to me? Not anymore. But why did they listen to them, the parents in the 1500s? Because they understand that you love them. You're not doing this for yourself, hopefully. You're not doing it for your own kavod or your own sense of, uh, of achievement. You're doing it because you love me and therefore I'll listen to you even though I don't really understand where you're coming from. Moshe Rabbeinu was saying, however, the Jewish people, Einam botchim biklal, they don't trust me. They don't have the trust in me and therefore I can't be an effective leader. So I have to believe in you and your vision, but I also have to know that you believe in me so I could trust that you have what's best for me in mind, not just what's best for it. Again, in that eulogy that Ivan Cutler said about the Chazonish, he said with the Chazonish, even though he was so intense and he was so involved with his learning, he made time for every single person that had a question. People would come in and he would focus on their issue as if it was the only thing in the world. Like a sugiya chamura, like a deep discussion in Talmud. 
Nothing else mattered when he was sitting with you. Moshe Rabbeinu was the exact same way. Why did Moshe Rabbeinu have a hard time speaking? Where did his speech impediment come from? There are Midrashic sources. But the Ralbag says, you know why he couldn't speak? Because he was so lofty. He was so spiritual. You know, we have this in picture in mind of Moshe Rabbeinu, that he was a very holy person, he had a long white beard, he, he would speak to Hashem. But, but you could never fathom Moshe Rabbeinu. Being in his presence would, would be sakhanus nefashos. It would just blow you away. He was so engaged with Hashem, it was hard for him to take his mind off of that connection. That's why he had a hard time speaking. L'sader devar of Ba'ofen haroi, to just organize his words in a way that, that you would understand him, because he was so in devekus, cleaving to Hashem. Nonetheless, although he was on that high spiritual level, in Kolzeh, he didn't want to cut down his time he had with Klal Yisrael. And that's why before Yisrael's father-in-law came along, he wanted to make sure that every issue would come straight to him. Is, but it, it's disturbing you. You should be meditating right now. You should be receiving prophecy right now. He always had time for people. Not only do I have to realize that you believe in me and you care about me, but the fourth principle of leadership is I have to know that you understand me. You can care about me all you want, but if I don't think you get me, then it's not going to be that helpful. And that's where this Parsha comes into play, and that's where we understand the request of Moshe Rabbeinu asking for a new leader of the Jewish people. He says a very strange phrase, Yifkur Hashem Elokei Ruchos, Hashem, the God of all the spirits, l'chol basar, of all flesh, Ishal Eda appoint a man to be the leader of Kal Yisrael. Why was he calling Hashem Elokei Ruchos, the God of all the spirits? So Rashi famously says, what Moshe was hinting to, or Moshe's main ask from Hashem was, it's clear that you know that every human being is different. Shekol echad ve'echad has their own perception, their own brain chemistry, their own way of viewing life. And no one is the exact same. Therefore, mana alehem manhig, please appoint a leader. She is sovel kol echad ve'echad, who can be sovel. Sovel doesn't just mean understand, it means who could bear the burden. Savlanut means patience. Recently I was the recipient of the Israeli form of saying, hold on for a second. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. You look at different cultures. You know, we try to be somewhat polite. Just hold on for one second. I'm finishing up the phone call. I'll get right back to you. Pardon me. There's no such thing as pardon me. It's which basically means you're, you're disturbing me. I'll get back to you when I'm ready. Savlanut is patience. What Moshe was asking for is, Hashem, please appoint a leader that could bear the burden of every individual. Dealing with people is not easy. Understanding people is rare. But to understand people with patience and compassion and empathy, that's almost unheard of. But that's a leader. I have to know you understand me. When Moshe was coming down from Harsinai, after being there and receiving the Torah, 
And then he hears about the, the nation who's gone off and they've built the golden calf. Yeshua, who's been waiting towards the foot of the mountain for the entire 40 days, he meets up with Moshe. Ve'yishma Yeshua es kolaom, and Yeshua heard the, the, the voice, the sounds of the nation, and he said to Moshe, kol milchama b'machana, I think I hear the sound of war in the camp. Moshe said back to Yeshua, ein kolanos gevura, ve'en kolanos chalusha, that's not the sound of victory. That's not the sound of defeat. Kol onos enochi shemeya. That's the sound of rebellion that I hear. The Talmud Yerushalmi, quoted by the Ramban, says that Moshe was giving criticism to Yeshua. He was telling Yeshua, if you're going to be the next leader of the Jewish people, you have to know these things. It's not just about knowing all of Torah. You have to understand people well, and you have to be able to pick up on the nuances. That's part of your job as being a leader. You have to know me. Principle number five is, we always have to keep on learning. No matter how much you've done, no matter how much you know, no matter how much people think you know, you always have to keep on learning. That's your anchor, that's your fire. There's no way to ignite other people without keeping your flame alive. That's why we say about the person who knows the most, he's the Talmud Chacham, which literally means he's a wise student. We're all Talmidim, he's the Talmud Chacham, but we're all students. Rashi explains the reason why Yeshua waited for Moshe 40 days at the bottom of the mountain. It's kind of a strange thing. You can't go up. This is a private time between Hashem and Moshe when Moshe receives the Torah. So why do you have to wait a little bit above. Stay back home with your, with your family, and Moshe will come back down, and you'll get the whole scoop from him when he gets there. So Rashi says, I'm not sure. I'm not 100% sure why Yeshua had to wait, but perhaps he wanted to be there to escort his Rebbe down. He would have a few moments with Moshe as he was walking down the mountain together, because in Yeshua's perspective, it's all worth it. I'll hang out here camping for 40 days, and some people are good campers and some people are not good campers. I just spoke to someone who was camping with his family for a week on their summer vacation, and it sounds like it was torturous for him. It was together with his in-laws, so that probably didn't make it better. But I'm going to camp out here for 40 days just to have a few more minutes with Moshe when he comes down the mountain. That's what makes a leader. I'm always learning. I'm always turning to people greater than myself to gain more knowledge. Principle number six is something that's very basic. It's self-sacrifice. Oftentimes it's not, not that much glory, not that much honor. You're blamed for everything that happens and given credit for almost nothing. It says at the end of the uh, Parshas Balosacha, when Moshe was davening for his sister, she had saras, so he turns to Hashem and says, Kelna Rafana la, please Hashem heal her. And that was it. That was the entire prayer. So Rashi is bothered by the question, you could daven a little bit more than that. She's your sister. You're only in this world because she was looking after you when you were a baby. Put some time into the, to the, to the davening. So one answer he gives is, 
if he would take too long davening for his sister, then everyone else would say, you see, you see, he's davening like that for his sister. I'm sure if it was me, he wouldn't be davening like that. That's a strange thing to say. People would think they would have a taina, they would have a complaint, look at he's davening for his sister. You call him a leader? But that's how it works. Anything we could find to somehow blame the guy in charge, we do that. So, being a leader as a parent, as a teacher, in any capacity, it's always self-sacrifice. When Moshe comes down from the mountain, the Torah tells us he goes minahar el from the mountain to the people. Rashi comes along and says, it's pointing out that Moshe didn't make a stop along the way. Moshe He didn't get any involved with his own needs. He went straight from the mountain to the people. He didn't get involved with his own needs. Why would he have? It's kind of a strange thing to do. I just received the Torah. I just had this one-on-one communication that changed my life and my radiance literally forever. Why would I now... I'm going to just get a Starbucks and a, and a blueberry muffin and now the Dunkin' Donuts is becoming kosher, Baruch Hashem. And then I'll get back to the nation. Why would he do that? So some explain, it doesn't mean that he would have spent time picking up a Starbucks. It means that, like the Ralbag told us, because he was so obsessed with spirituality, he was so living with Devekus, with this connection with Hashem, you would have thought he might take just a moment to meditate, to digest, to ruminate, to take a breath before getting back to the people. Rashi's telling us, the Torah's telling us, that wasn't Moshe. I'm not taking any time for myself right now, even though I might be losing out on some more ruchnius and some more spirituality, I got to get back to the people and help them. So there's self-sacrifice, but on the other hand, and it's a principle number seven, leaders have to take care of themselves. Why? Because if I need you, and they need you, and you're not in top form, intellectually, spiritually, emotionally, or physically, then you can't be there for us. The argument that Moshe had with Yisro, that Yisro told him, you can't judge all of these cases by yourself, you're going to get worn out. And Moshe said back, like the Ralbag told us, but I need to be with every person. I want everyone to know that I care about them. I want to look at their case myself. Yisrael said back to Moshe, you have to understand, if you wear yourself out, it's not just about you, but it's meirov halvoz ulai tafrid hadavekus. From you working yourself so hard, you might lose some of that connection you've created with Hashem. You might be diminished in your ability to receive prophecy. So what? And then you can't do your job. That was the winning argument of Yisro. It wasn't just, you might lose prophecy. That's a big deal. Moshe didn't care about that. If that means I could be there more for my people, then I'll lose that into prophecy. But if you lose out on taking care of yourself, Yisra was telling Moshe, they're going to be losing out as well. So it's all about self-sacrifice, but it's also making sure I'm taking care of myself for the greater good. Principle number eight, 
is the idea of listening. Leaders often have a lot to say and a lot to teach and a lot to, to share. But without listening to where we're coming from or what our needs are, there's a lot you're going to miss. As David HaMelech was lying on his deathbed, and he's holding the hand of Shlomo as a young man. Shlomo was 12 years old when David passed away. He tells him, V'chazakta, you should be strong, V'ha'isa'la'ish, and you should be a man. His parting words to Shlomo, be strong and be a man. What does it mean to be a man? So we would assume that means to be courageous, to be brave, to be the hero. The Ralbag comes along and he says that David was telling Shlomo, right now you're young, but don't act like a youth. Try to be a gadol. Try to act like, like a man through seeking advice, through asking questions. Listen to people. Get advice. That's how you become a man. Principle number nine is, don't listen too much. And I'll give you an example of that. I was having a conversation with somebody, and we're talking about a particular thing that either needs to happen or needs not to happen. And he was very forceful with his opinion, very passionate. And he was basically saying that if we don't do it like this, I can't be involved, I'm not going to be part of it. So I told him nicely, he's a, he's a very, very perceptive person. I said, the, the, the passionate plea, I'm hearing and I'm digesting, but that doesn't paskin the shaila, that doesn't determine what we're going to do. We have to take in all the information, but ultimately we have to do the right thing. And then he said back to me, like, listen, Rabbi, I get it. You have to wake up tomorrow morning feeling that you did the right thing, that you made the right choice. And I said, no. I have to stand before the Boreolam, the infinite creator of the universe, and I have to feel like we made the right choice. It's not about waking up tomorrow morning and feeling okay with it. So sometimes when we listen too much, not that there's too much listening, but if we allow that to sway our opinion on something, that could be detrimental. The classic example of this is Shaul HaMelech, the first king of Eretz Yisrael. We know that in chapter 15 of Shmuel Aleph, he was given clear orders to destroy a Amalek. And uh, they pretty much finish up the job, but not entirely. And then Shmuel comes and he has the famous words, I hear the sound of the sheep. You didn't destroy the entire nation. What's going on? And Shaul says back to Shmuel, Ki I was afraid of the people. What does that mean, you were afraid of the people? The Malbim says, Shesiba sachet, the shorish, the root of the mistake that Shaul made that lost his kingdom, he was afraid, he was intimidated by the people. He didn't feel comfortable going against their will. He knew that they didn't want to do this, and therefore he didn't want to push. That's listening too much. 
That means we can't be afraid. We need to listen. We need to take in. Oftentimes, what's the opposite of listening? It's waiting to speak. That's what people do. They don't really listen. They wait to speak. Listen means I'm really, really paying attention to what you're saying, and therefore I'm willing to change my mind. Maybe I'm wrong. We all make a lot of mistakes. But I'm not willing to allow you to brainwash me or to sway me in the wrong direction. Here's principle number 10. I think this is probably the most important. As parents, as educators, in any level of leadership, everything we do in life are always influencing others. But I think principle number 10 is we cannot judge ourselves based on our performance. Which means as follows. Let's say I'm a rabbi in Kansas and I've been there for the last 50 years, day and night, working hard, trying to build a community, trying to get a real minion together. And 50 years later, I don't have much to show for it. I have the same amount of people now as I did before. Nothing's really changing. Let's say I'm a parent where I've been trying for years and years to get my children to be doing this and they just don't care. Let's say I'm a teacher and I'm trying to maintain some level of control in the classroom and I've worked so hard preparing this lesson plan and I thought they would love it and they would be excited and it's interactive and the kids could care less and they're not behaving, they're not listening. We often judge ourselves based on the outcome of our actions. That's a lack of bitacha. The tenth and most important principle in leadership is, I have to do my job. I have to wake up tomorrow morning and I have to stand before the infinite creator of the universe and say, I really tried hard. I tried to share the vision. I tried to to show people that I, that I care for them and I love them in a very real and genuine way. I try to get them on board and, and participate in the vision. I try to make sure that people know I care about them more than it. I try to, to do everything I can to understand them, to be there for them, to listen, but not to listen too much. And it's just not working out that well. Bitachon having that sense of reliance and security and trust that Hashem runs the world, that would tell me, no problem. No problem. You're doing your job. It's a lot easier said than done. Yeshaya Hanavi, towards the end of his life, was feeling a sense of despair. He was given a mission to prophesize to the Jewish people, to try to get them to do tshuva, to change their, way, their ways, to hopefully somehow... Stop this downward process that led to the destruction of the first base of Migdash. And he turns to Hashem with a sense of despair and he says, I've toiled for nothing. Look at all this work I'm putting into it and they're not changing. I'm trying to be Makare of all these people and I get my hopes up all the time but then I don't see the fruit of my labor. Hashem's answer to Yeshaya was, V'yomer, nokel mios chali evid. Is it just a small thing that you're an evid? That you're, that you're doing your service? Is that a small thing? 
The Radak explains Hashem's answer to Yeshaya was, don't look at whether or not you changed the world. That wasn't your job. My job isn't to change the world. My job isn't to change other people. My job is to try. My job is to put forth the hishtadlus, to be the manhig, to be the leader I can be in my sphere of influence. As long as you're doing that, says the Kodesh Baruch Hu, Nakil Miyosachaliyevit is a small thing to be my my servant. You've accomplished everything you were here to do. In the words of the Radak, even though the people of your generation didn't listen to you, it should be sufficient that you did my message. You brought my message to the world. So to recap briefly and to conclude, we are all leaders. Nothing to do with the initials before or after a name, nothing to do with position, and sometimes we could accomplish more by not having any official position. You could be more of an impact on my life because you're not a rabbi, and I can relate to you more. The goal in general is we're producing Yehudim Gedolim, great Jews who understand what Judaism is, who appreciate the centrality of learning Torah, and who live a life of Torah. The ten steps are, first and foremost, having a clear vision, but it's not just your vision, it's our vision. You're not trying to create followers, you're trying to create disciples, people who share it, people who understand why, and we're doing it not just because we like or respect you, we're doing it because we respect the mission. The second point was authenticity and sincerity. If I can't believe in you, I can't believe in your product. I need to know that you live what you preach. The third thing is that I have to know that you believe in me and you care about me more than it, more than the the outcome. The fourth principle was I know that not only do you care about me and you love me, but you understand me, you get me. The fifth principle of leadership is we always have to be learning. The highest accomplishment is I'm a Talmud Chacham, I'm a wise student. But we're always, always learning more, keeping ourselves anchored in Torah. Without that, we have nothing. The fifth principle is, that was number five. Number six is self-sacrifice. If we're looking for the glory, if we're looking for the, uh, the satisfaction of everything that I've done and how much people appreciate it, we're probably in the wrong field to realize that we get blamed for almost everything and get credit for hardly anything. To the contrary, though, number seven was we have to take care of ourselves. We have to take care of ourselves physically, emotionally, and sometimes that means I have to speak to somebody. Maybe there's something going on in my life that I'm just not able to work out in the ways that I've tried before. Sometimes that means I want to speak to someone professionally. We have to take care of ourselves to be able to take care of others. Number eight is the art of listening. I want to hear what you have to say, and I'm willing to change my mind. I'm not just waiting to speak, but I'm absorbing information. But number nine was, don't listen too much to the point where I'm going to have a hard time going against what I think you're going to like. You have to do what's right, because it's right. And number ten was the principle of bitachon. It's not about what I've accomplished, what people are going to look at, 
what they're going to write a book about 50 years from now, it's knowing that I tried my best. Is it a little thing to be considered an Evid of Hashem? That's the greatest thing in the world. We should all be Zoha, we should all have divine siyata deshmaya to do the best we possibly can in our sphere of influence. A good Shabbos.